This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Seton Home Study School, an accredited school assisting homeschooling parents with an academically excellent and authentically Catholic curriculum. To learn more about Seton, go to seatonhome.org. That's seatonhome.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, coming at you is something that I feel like would be fun to say if I was on 90s radio. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, a connoisseur himself of 90s radio, Ed Condon. I, I don't know that that's fair. Well, isn't it, though? I mean, weren't you listening to, I don't know, Sky Radio or something like that? And didn't you spend the 90s listening to sort of British pop radio? No. Um, I, I did... Before it went extinct, I did like Jazz FM for a while. That was good. Jazz FM, yeah. You it was did it like... was perfect studying music. It was great background music. They actually there was a they they did Jazz FM did a live uh, not a live um a double compilation album they called Listen in Color, which was their strapline, and it was a really great double album. It just I had that I it's broken and lost long ago now, but um it was it was a really great album. I enjoyed it. Yeah. But no, I never really, I've, I've never really been into radio. I, it, I mean, it's not that I have anything against it. It just, it was, it was never my medium. Ed, I am very, very surprised that you listen to jazz, though, that jazz is a genre of music that you like. I would think that you would have curmudgeonly opinions about jazz, Ed. And why would I expect that you might have curmudgeonly opinions about something? Uh, I don't, about this, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I'm musically omnivorous. I, I like a little of everything. I'm not a... I'm, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't have a lane that I stick to in terms of music. I like good music. I like jazz. I like blues. I like classical music. I I like rock. As people on this podcast know, I have a certain affinity, especially for '90s hip hop. Um, you know, I yeah, it takes all kinds. Well, uh, you never cease to surprise me. You know, you never cease to surprise me, and it's amazing. And as long as we've been making this podcast, you know, you just discover something new about someone, and suddenly you see them in a whole new light. Uh. Okay. <laughs> and may, I, may I say I treasure you ex especially because you are always exactly as I imagine you to be? <laughs> well, uh, I'm deeply offended. But this has been a day for me to be deeply offended. As you know, I've been deeply offended all day over various things. I've been, I've been a bit of a cur curmudgeon today, but I have a... Uh, and you know because I've been convincing to you about various things on the telephone. Um, but I, I've sort of shaken it off for the show, and I am just... Uh, I've got... I've, I'm excited about this show, and I've got some joy in my heart, Ed, and uh, and I am ready. G gratitude. I've got gratitude for the goodness and grace of our God. And I mean that. We've just been talking to our kids a lot lately about gratitude because they've been complaining. And um, and I'm just reminded of, uh, of the importance of gratitude for the goodness of God. So, uh, you know, want to talk about that? Sure. And, and good for you riding the roller coaster. <laughs> I, um, I, I don't have to deal with these ups and downs. I'm just always offended and angry. So I mean, would you uh, not agree that 20 minutes before we started recording the show, I was pretty dicked? Oh, you were hot. You were you were hopping mad. You you were annoyed. I mean, as I said to you at the time, welcome to the party. But <laughs> <laughs> you uh, think yes. we're not going to get into it. We are getting into it. But uh, <laughs> you you would agree in a certain way that I had uh, that I had reason to be frustrated about a thing that was kind of happening that is not for public consumption. But I had reason to be frustrated. Uh, but I'm moving on. I'm I'm moving on. Good for you. I I support you. I will I will keep our vendettas and treasure them in my heart. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, okay. So, Ed, there's a lot going on in the life of the church um, this week. Would you agree? Uh, there's there's been some stuff. Yeah. 
um, but one of them is the announcement of new members of the College of Cardinals. New members in the College of Cardinals. On this show, if you haven't listened to the show before, and you just found it, you found like a, a CD or mixtape of this show sitting on a bus station floor or something like that, and you just popped into your Walkman. On this show, what we do is we talk about the news of the life of the church. It's a kind of odd intro show in which we talk mostly about the news of the life of the church uh, from the perspective of two people who cover the life of the church as journalists and as canon lawyers. And the big news in the life of the church this week was that the Holy Father named 20 new, 21 new members of the College of Cardinals. Uh, that is right. And fully 16 of them will, one expects, be of voting age. Fully 16 the of them will be of voting age. What that means is that uh, if you you can vote... Okay, so one of the big things, one of the big things that... Uh, the big perks that comes with being a member of the College of Cardinals, I mean, you know, one of the good ones, is that uh, you are uh, a member of the group of uh, people who vote on the election of the next Roman pontiff, the next bishop of Rome in something called a conclave. And, uh, and so um, you can vote uh, in a conclave, the gathering of cardinals, for the purpose of electing a Roman pontiff if you are how old? 80 years old or younger. Is that correct? Uh, or is it 79 no, uh, years old? And un- until, 79 until years old, 364 years. days. Right. When you turn 80, you can't vote anymore. Correct. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Although, well, and, uh, if you are 79 at the point at which the sea falls Vacant. Oh, I thought it was at the point at which the conclave began. No, it's at the point at which the because this is the thing is for example, um, Cardinal Walter Casper mm-hmm. uh, was seventy nine, I believe, when Pope Benedict the Sixteenth abdicated. And if Benedict had announced his abdication, or not announced his abdication, if he had timed the efficacy of his abdication, right? Because there was a vacatio. He said, "I will resign at X, you know, at yeah. X time." Yeah. But if he'd pushed it back by another week. Casper would have turned 80 and would have been ineligible to attend the conclave. Interesting. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, huh. But he did not have his birthday in the conclave. Do you think the con- the conclave would be a fun place to have a birthday? I don't know. Do you? I, uh, this is the thing is I'm, I am always unclear about exactly how, how conclave the conclave is these days because, you know, they not very, I mean, they're staying in the hotel. Let's break they're, that down a little bit. So conclave means with key, right? And it used to yeah, be under lock and key, under basically. lock and key effectively. And, uh, and the reason why we call it with key, uh, under key, if you will, is because, um, it was the case until the last conclave, um, for a very long time that cardinals were, uh, locked together in the Sistine chapel, um, within the apostolic palace, uh, until such time as they elected someone and little like, um, a little barracks effectively would be built in there. Carpenters would come in and build shoddy plywood rooms. I'm sure before there was plywood, they built them out of something else, but little shoddy plywood sort of rooms in which one might sleep. Um, but as, as, uh, as cardinals are getting older and, you know, arguably as we're all getting less tough than we once were, um, the rules have changed. And, uh, and so now cardinals can stay in the Doma Sancta Marta. In fact, that was kind of the purpose of building the Doma Sancta Marta kind of hotel, uh, apartment-ish hotel building inside the Vatican City State. Cardinals can stay there, and then they're sort of bussed back and forth to the Sistine Chapel uh, every day for the... Actually, I think they're not bussed. They walk. They, they walk, they walk in thought, solemn procession. I thought I'd seen um, pictures of them getting on and off buses. Well, maybe some of the ones who can't make the, yeah, the, older make ones. the step. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But no, they, they I think, as, if I'm remembering this correctly, they basically mount a guard, and they, they process from the Domus to the Sistine Chapel every day. And you can't get near them because there's, you know, gendarmes and Swiss guards and all that stuff. Which there are I mean, a lot of rules about that kind of like you can't, tr- you know, it's always been the case that you can't try to influence a conclave or spy on it or anything like that. But now that there's a mobile element to it, that has um, become uh, all the more pronounced. 
Yes. I mean, few people know this, but the Vatican city-state actually has quite a sophisticated counterintelligence operation running out of the Vatican gendarme's office. They have um, bug sweeping and, you know, uh, anti-electronic surveillance tech uh, that they buy off the shelf from some international contractors uh, that is pretty high spec. Um Depending on who you believe, they tend to use it more against people in the Vatican. Than well, they they have they the also have an intelligence, ga- a sophisticated intelligence gathering network, and there's always talk. Whenever you're in Rome for a big to do as a journalist, there's always talk among the journalists that like be very careful because the Holy See is listening to your phone calls, the press office is listening to your phone calls. For us, that doesn't matter because we don't say anything on the phone unless we're on an encrypted, uh, unless we're in an encrypted conversation. And then you still make us use um, an elaborate set of code words just because you get a kick out of it. Um, I do. But, uh, you know, eh. well, it's because there's always you see them more in Rome. You see some other journalist uh, nearby and they're always trying to figure out what we're talking about or why we're in Rome or what we're up to. And so I I enjoy saying elaborately coded things to bemuse them and leave them scratching their head. It just it it's I'm messing with them, J.D., and it's fun. Um, But it is worth noting. The cow is in the tower. And then you say the cow is in the tower and then I have to get out my my code book and then I have to sort of check through what each of that means and. The, uh, then you, you know, realize I just want to go and get steak for dinner. Right, exactly. All right. Um, uh, but yeah, so the, the Holy See does have a sophisticated intelligence gathering network and a counterintelligence gathering network. But as is true in any effort, uh, in any kind of security situation um, with regard to sort of digital security and tech accountability and these kinds of things, the biggest risk to even sophisticated intelligence and counterintelligence mechanisms are user error and user carelessness. So, for example, I'm sure you have seen these stories about Russian soldiers um, in Ukraine in recent weeks using hookup apps, um, location-based hookup apps, and by that fact, um, making it possible for Ukrainian intelligence gathering services to uh, have clarity on the, the location of various kinds of troop movements among Russian soldiers and that sort of thing in which um, location-based hookup apps has been used to track tr- troop movements um, has been used before. Um, and uh, and I only raise that as an example to say that um, when people are careless with, uh, with, an, in, with um, their own sort of digital um, footprint, uh, all the best intelligence and counterintelligence um, technology in the world won't help them. That is true. I, I thought you were pitching for... Um, one of those VPN companies to try and advertise on the podcast. <laughs> do you? You don't really listen to podcasts, do you? I don't really listen to podcasts. No, I I listen to a few. Um, and and VPN companies, perhaps knowing knowing the market of the kind of people who listen to podcasts like me, um, are constantly pitching their wares on as as in ad spots on podcasts. And I mean, to be fair, I I have I have two I have two VPN subscriptions. So I you know. Why not? I am not um, pitching VPN uh, companies to advertise on the podcast, but I will say that if you are interested in advertising on the Pillar Podcast, just shoot us a note and uh, you uh, you could hear your product or service being slung and pitched by the best of them, which is to say me and Ed. Indeed. Now, getting back to the conclave, it is worth noting getting back as to a historical That's right. fact that the reason the cardinals are put under lock and key um, – formerly, literally, now metaphorically, is not actually to safeguard the secrecy of the conclave, although the secrecy of the conclave is necessary and enforced. But the reason that we traditionally lock cardinals in is to make them reach a decision. Um, the first conclave, properly speaking, was when the the, card- the College of Cardinals met to elect 
one of the Roman pontiffs, not in Rome. I, it was in a it was in a church in an Italian city or village, somewhere in the middle of the country, I believe. Um, in my head, it's near Assisi, but I could be making that up. Uh, but anyway, they took forever, and it was taking months or even years to elect Pope. And we had a city of Acante, the church needed to move on. And so the decision was made to literally wall up the doors and windows until the cardinals went on with it and, and actually elected somebody. So it's, it's, um, it's a help to, to focus the minds of their eminences while they, while they deliberate such things. That's right. That's right. So some of the cardinals who were appointed by the Holy Father are, um, are, are more than 80 and therefore they are, will not be voting members of the College of Cardinals. Now, we a question that I have gotten recently, and it's just a it's just an interesting canonical question. And I don't think anyone should read into it, but a question we've gotten recently is like, when can, when is a person eligible to vote in the in the College of Cardinals if they were named a cardinal on Sunday? And uh, and I can tell you. Uh, well, you can tell me, but I actually <laughs> this will perhaps not surprise you. I I actually think I, I thought I agreed with you. And then I did a little bit more reading, and now I think I don't agree with you. So um, I'd like us to keep this cool and copacetic, but I would like okay. you to say what you think, and then I'll say what I think. It was not my expectation that this was going to be a contentious question. It's not I a contentious laws... question. I just think it's interesting. Cardinals were named on Sunday. When are they el- – but there, there will be a consistory at which they receive the red hat and get the ring and these kinds of things in August. When can they participate in the – if there were a conclave between now and August, which – God save the Pope, there won't be. But if there were a conclave between now and August, um, would they be eligible to participate? And that's a question that we've heard a number of times. And it's just sort of just an interesting procedural or technical question. I, I suppose so. My my reading of the law on this is fairly straightforward. I'm trying to open it now so that I can um, have it give you absolute chapter verse. But the relevant part is paragraph 36 of uh, University of Medici Gregis, which is the apostolic constitution. Article 36, UDG, which is the Apostolic Constitution governing the election of a Pope. Here we are. A cardinal of the Holy Roman Church who has been created and published before the College of Cardinals thereby has the right to elect the Pope in accordance with the norms of number 33 of the present Constitution, even if he has not yet received the red hat or the ring or sworn the oath. On the other hand, cardinals who have been canonically deposed or who with the consent of the Roman Pontiff have renounced the cardinal... <coughs> that you. Do not... Indeed. Do not... Moreover, during the period of vacancy, the College of Cardinals cannot readmit or rehabilitate them. Yes. So it seems fairly clear to me. The Cardinals have been created and published. They have not yet received the red hat, the ring, or sworn the oath. But under the terms of Article 36 of UDG, they are good to go from now. That's what I thought, too. I'm going to give it another reading, and then I'm going to read to you the announcement from Sunday the 29th. A, car- right. a Cardinal of the Roman the Holy Roman Church who has been created and published before the College of Cardinals, thereby uh, has the right to elect the Pope in accordance with Norm 33. Created and published before the College of Cardinals, thereby has the right. Now, here's the announcement from 29 May. On Monday, 29 and Tuesday, 30 August, a meeting will be held of all the Cardinals to reflect on the new apostolic constitution, Predicate Evangelium, and this is an announcement from the um, from the cell stamp of the press office of the Holy See. And on Saturday, 27 August, I will hold a consistory for the creation of new cardinals. Here are the names of the new cardinals. It seems to me that what the Holy Father has done Ooh. is not create new cardinals by decree, but announce that he will create new cardinals by both in both ceremony, both ritually and by decree on 27 August. Interesting. Yeah. So while once I had thought, as you did, these guys can be electors 
starting now, if, you know, God help us, there would be a conquest. I mean, I, I understand what you're doing with the language here, and that's interesting. But is this is the language used in this announcement different to the language used uh, at the creation of previous cardinals? I haven't and looked, but I have a theory. I would be interested to look at that, especially in JP Tuesday, since he's the author of UDG. Yeah. And so he, his, uh, you know, he is the original mind of the legislator and all this. But I put it this way. Um, what is the purpose of the law, assuming that the announcement creating this most recent batch or not creating them, announcing the creation of this most recent batch is not substantively different to previous announcements? What is the purpose of UDG 36 then? Is it just to provide for the occasion where the consistory starts meeting and the Pope drops dead before he actually puts the hat on their head? No, I have a different theory about it. Okay. Uh, my theory is that um, the, that Article 36, which says a cardinal um, has the right to elect the Pope, uh, even if he has not yet received the red hat or the ring or sworn the oath, pertains to those who would be created cardinals who are incarcerated, who are impeded from travel by virtue of ill health, who are named cardinals in pectore, which is to say in the heart of the Pope. And It doesn't count for in pectore. There's a separate paragraph. Oh, there's a separate paragraph for that? Okay, so... Yeah, pectores get no rights whatsoever okay. until they're named, they're named in public. Okay, so not in pectore, but for those who the Pope would create, but are for some reason impeded from attending the sort of ritual enrollment, if you will, in the College of Cardinals. I suspect that what happens... I suspect that what happens on the 27th, and I haven't looked at the rituals for this, but it's a place where liturgical law might be instructive to us. I suspect that what happens on the 27th is that the Pope signs a decree creating them cardinals, and that that decree could include more persons than are actually present. So that the American who is named... Who is the American named Cardinal... Cardinal um, Cardinal, well, card, Cardinal to be Bishop Robert oh, McElroy. McElroy, right, right, right. Yeah, Cardinal Bob McElroy was named uh, of a 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 um, San Diego, San Diego, California. That's right, the San Diego Charger. They call him, um, or you know what they should call him? I hope they do. I hope they call him the San Diego Padre. I don't know if they do or they don't, Ed. But if they don't, it's a wasted opportunity. Um, at any rate. Uh, so let's say that the San Diego Padre himself cannot make it to the consistory because he uh, has ill health or let's say he's incarcerated for some reason or something like that. Um, the Holy Father could still, it would seem to me, um, sign the decree for the, his creation as a cardinal, even if he were not ritually able to receive the thing or, or what have you. This is a fascinating interpretation. I, again, for me, all will hinge on, all hinges with this on the extent to which the announcement creating this new badge um, is the same or substantially different to previous announcements, particularly under JP2, because I want to I want to see if there's a difference there. But well, this is a fascinating me, interpretation. Help me understand. So let's say that they so let's say that previous one said if previous one said has been created cardinal, well then they would be cardinals from that moment. But exactly. Um, but if previous ones did, and if this is the historical precedent that they say it this way, I'm not sure that's especially instructive unless we ran into a situation where there were cardinals who didn't get red-hatted before they went to the conclave. No, no, no. I'm saying if if the announcements in, under previous popes were different and said they are created cardinals now with this announcement and the consistory will meet to formally invest them blah, 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 in the future, then that would change my reading back to my original reading of yeah, UDG yeah. 36. But assuming that the, the announcement from this past week is the same as it has been for all the previous batches, which I haven't checked, but I will... Um, then I would agree with your reading. I think that's 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 good law. I like that. And I, I was I, I was uh, I was surprised because I did not think that this was the case. But it would seem to me, based upon reading this, that should there be a conclave between, and this is a purely academic question. I'm being sincere when I say, God help us, may there be no conclave. 
the summer and, and all of that. And part of the reason I'm saying that is I have a lot of summer plans in a conclave. We go to Rome and stuff like that. But the other reason I'm saying that is because God bless the Pope. I, I wish to see the Pope's reign. I wish to see the Pope in long, long in health and long in reign. Um, but just as a purely sort of legal question, I think it's interesting because um, it would not, it would seem to me that if we had a conclave between now and then, UDG 36 would not apply to those who have uh, who have not yet been created by decree cardinals, and rather the thing is intended for impediments. But here's... this is a fascinating read. I'm I'm and I'm glad that this that your reading is correct because there was obviously one person who has been named a cardinal who has attracted a lot of attention and a lot of media scrutiny. Irlanda, yeah. Who, if uh, if under my previous reading of UDG 36, he's 79, but he will be 80 by the time of the um, consistory. My reading of UDG 6, 36 was, well, if, God forbid, there was a conclave between now and then, he'd be in because he'd be 79. And obviously, we don't want that because Monsignor Garlanda is a, is a very noted, very famous, well-respected and well-beloved canonist. And um, I'm not taking anything away from that. He's also a demented positivist. And so the idea of turning him loose in a conclave terrifies me. This is the guy who said out loud that... Well, this is... Garlanda's um, an interesting appointment. He is an um, interesting appointment for a couple of reasons. But Garlanda was the one who said when they announced Predicate Evangelii, when they published it, um, said, well, the power of governance in the church derives from canonical mission, not from the power of sacramental orders. Right. So, so Jean-Franco Garlanda... Turn him loose in a conclave and they'd elect a woman. I mean, kind he's, of regarded as a line of canon law um, in a lot of ways and is, is uh, taught at the Gregorian University... Taught canon law at the Gregorian University for about 100 years, which is amazing because it turns out he's only 79. But he's taught for about 100 years at the Gregorian University and has had his hand in many, many things that have happened in the life of the church. And He's currently responsible for the, if you like, the the Pope's special working groups draft of a new constitution for the Order of Malta. Right. And he did something. I think that Gerlando was a big player in rewriting the statutes of the Legion of Christ uh, after the yes. apostolic visitation. So Gerlando, it's not just Francis who has sort of called on Gerlanda. Gerlanda has been sort of involved in things uh, in the life of the church for a long time because he's regarded as an important canon lawyer. But he has been, uh, and he was named a cardinal, but he has been saying things that he, he, he has been behind a movement which seems to be emerging that would radically reinterpret, um, I think, uh, perhaps people think that, I'm, that that's an overstatement, but to my mind, would radically reinterpret the church's thinking on the notion of the relationship between um, the, the, uh, the munis regendi, the power of governance, um, and uh, and the um, and sacred order sacramental hierarchy yeah, and, and the sacramental, sacramental hierarchy, hierarchy. Yeah. hierarchy so it is it is the case that um, that the church has taught and teaches both in law and I would argue in doctrine that um, the power of governance and by that we mean the power to exercise yeah office governance in the life of the church um, to have sort of authority for the care of souls um, is uh, is a power that is imposed or uh, incurred through one is made Capax. Right, one is made capable. Thank you. That is precisely the language that one needs. That one is made capable for offices of the power that entail the power of governance, uh, that entail a direct exercise of the power of governance by virtue of sacred ordination to the priesthood. Um, and uh, and then you are made hobbles to right. exercise that capability by the reception office, of canonical mission. Right, when you're given an office. But um, and so lay people therefore can share in the power of governance by delegation. Um, but can't... Uh, some powers of governance. Some powers of governance by de- can share in the power of governance by delegation for certain acts. Um, yes. But, uh, but, but, but that um, orders, again, makes a person capable, imposes this capability of the exercise of governance in the same way that it imposes the capability, for example, of confecting the Eucharist, 
that orders does this thing, which is configuring a person to Christ and imposing certain capacities upon them, um, that orders does that. Uh, and lay people can share the power of governance, but the power of governance is intrinsically linked uh, to, to, uh, to, to sacred orders. But Gerlanda, at the time of the, of the um, promulgation of Predicate Evangelium, which was just a couple months ago, said this thing about the power of governance deriving from mission, not orders. And it was uh, probably the most sort of un, under the radar but significant thing that was said around the time of uh, Predicate Evangelium, was it not? I, I would agree. You say it's under the radar. I think, um, you know, it's, the, the new constitution comes into force over the weekend, I think. That's right. Yeah, so after Pentecost, June 5th and so we have to stop saying we have to start saying the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith. Uh, <laughs> the dicastery for just aesthetically, of this whole dicastery, the dicastery thing for clergy. We have to start saying it on Pentecost. It's so Soviet. It's so ugly. It's so. Uh, so while once we said the while once we said the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, we'll say the DDF, which is a bit stumbly. But we'll now say the DFC for the Dicastery for Clergy. And I kind of like DFC. That's the one that I kind of, I, I kind of like the most. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, the DFB, uh, the Dicastery for Bishops. Um, yeah, et cetera. I mean, I'm just going to, the, the thing is the, the CDF, soon to be the DDF, will <laughs> will continue to have a cool nickname, um, much like the Oh, I'll just start Dicastery. saying the Holy Office more often. Exactly. People will start saying the Holy Office again more yeah. often. <laughs> In the same way that every, you can change the name of the current congregation for these evangelizations of people, all you want, people are still going to call it Prop Fide. Prop Fide, right? The, 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 the sacred congregation for the propagation of the faith, or Prop Fide, is what we call what is now known as the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples, and will soon be known as the Dicastery for the Evangelization of Peoples. Indeed. Mm-hmm. So what I was going to say is that's coming into force over the weekend after Pentecost. And we're going to have, if not, I mean, I'm expecting it Monday morning, but it's, you know, you never know. It could happen later in the week. It could, you know, be delayed by a month. It could happen when they come back from the summer. Who knows? It could happen at the same time as the consistory. What I have could happen? I missed it. There's going to have to be a change in the cabinet that quite a few of these dicasteries are headed by cardinals that are well above the age of 75. And some of them are big dicasteries and some of them are really over 75. And we have been expecting, waiting, anticipating, predicting um, when these changes in the cabinet are going to be made. And it seems to me the the logical and um, timely occasion for such a thing is when the new constitution comes into effect. And so when we start seeing new appointments and we start seeing, I would imagine, you know, you don't clearly and explicitly state, as Pope Francis did in Evangelium Predicate, that lay people can head dicasteries if he doesn't intend to appoint some lay people at the head of dicasteries. But so he did depend- say, the Holy Predicate Evangelium does say that lay people can uh, head dicasteries in accord with the, with the nature of the mission of the dicastery. So I, yes. I think actually, so this was a big deal. Lay people can head dicasteries. You know, this was the flashing, flashing, flashing headline sure, sure. Uh, at the time of the promulgation of Predicate Evangelium. But it's the, the size of the qualifier is potentially gigantic. I, I read it as gigantic because... Potentially. Yeah, right. Okay, we, carry on. No, 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 carry on, and then I'm going to offer you a counterfactual. Well, we would read it as as gigantic because we would say, okay, yes, lay people can exercise, can, can head a dicastery in accord with their competence, and the power of governance is tied with orders, and therefore, if your congregation exercises specific applica- uh, applications of the congregation for, govern- for uh, exercise of governance, a la clergy, a la, you know, the signatory, a la arguably bishops, um, a la the CDF, you're not going to be able to do this. Now, uh, could you head ca- Catholic education? Yeah, because I don't think they really have any prerogatives. I could be wrong about that, but I don't think they have any real sort of... They, they, a lot of candidates to head Catholic educational institutions, of, particularly of um, 
either ecclesiastical faculties. Oh, right. Or actually, like the NAC, right? Have, yeah, like the like, yeah. They have to be approved by. So maybe education. that might be another case where you you might run into the same same. Subject. I don't think you'd run into it at all, and I tell you for why. Um, but if you, you were say that, interpreting things, you would. I I well, how I used to interpret the thing is, right. um, what changed last month? What what little what little part of canon law did, had a stable rescript issued? Oh, I don't remember now. You just tell me what, I, I, when you do. Well, put this way: Do you think a lay person? Can... I'm like, I don't know what he's looking for. So just tell me the thing. Okay, sorry. Um, we changed the, the Pope Francis issued a, a basically a stable rescript, a, a permission for dispensation for a particular um, office in the church, which was major superiors of religious institutes and societies of apostolic life, allowing lay people to exercise the power of governance over clerical members. So, could a lay brother or sister? be prefect of what we're currently calling sickle cell and we'll now have to call dickle cell i guess we're, we're um, gonna call it something else we we are going to call it something else you can you can call it what you like buddy i'm gonna call I'm, it i'm just rolling with the times of consecrated life and societies, and of societies of apostolic life. Life. but i'm not gonna dickle cell get with the times man we will get be with the times. right back after this word from our sponsor you know ed i uh you probably know this have three children and um one of my children goes to the local pair school, but two of my children are homeschooled. And for our family, homeschooling has been the right choice and something that has been um, been a grace for us. But one of the challenges, at least for us, um, one of the challenges is um, just putting together a curriculum. If you're doing it on your own, knowing what your kids sort of should be learning, where uh, tracking kind of where they are and where you should be going, and putting together the right curriculum can be a challenge. I, I would imagine so. My own child is too young to need schooling yet, but a critical mass of my nieces and nephews, of which there are, at this point, literally dozens, uh, are are also homeschooled. And I I hear from my sisters and my sisters-in-law who tend to take the lead in, in their education at home uh, that, you know, curriculum is the thing. If, if it's working, it makes the whole thing a lot easier. It makes the whole thing go a lot more smoothly. So, yeah, I can well imagine. One, uh, one way to do that really well and one way to figure out if homeschooling is right for you is to check out seatonhome.org. The Seton Home Study School is actually an accredited school that aims to assist parents by providing um, a curriculum, books, lessons, plans, and services like academic counseling and grading and record keeping. Seton Home Study School is not just a set of books. It is an accredited school and also a publisher of its own Catholic textbooks, which are used even in some brick-and-mortar Catholic schools. So it kind of helps to make the prospect of homeschooling with all of the challenges that are incumbent there, um, a sort of one-stop shop in which you get assistance from an accredited school, parents, the primary educators of children, Seed Home Study School aims to provide all of the things um, which make homeschooling uh, much more straightforward and to ensure the Catholicity of homeschooling through this mechanism of an accredited school. Um, I will I will merely add uh, on a personal note that a a large number of my nephews are educated at home using Seton stuff. And while I... I can't claim over familiarity with the product uh, at first hand. I can tell you that my nephews are intelligent, well-mannered, uh, very educated and literate boys. So I'm sure that's going a long way towards it. Well, one of the things that I've learned as I've sort of checked out this program is that the, the, one of the cool things about the, the Seton approach is that the faith permeates the whole of it. Um, it's not just a curriculum that has religion, but it's an effort to inculcate uh, formation in the faith, formation in the Christian life in each of the elements of a, of a, of a Catholic home-based education. Yeah. I, I, the, I, the very idea of a Catholic education is one where you aren't, you know, just sort of cabining the faith into a religion class, but you are, you are approaching every discipline, science, 
mathematics, literature, all of these things from a Catholic perspective. That you know, part of part of the academic spirit of inquiry is intrinsic to the faith. You know, we we talk about fides et ratio. It's you know, these these things go hand in hand. So if you're interested in learning about whether Seton Home Study School might be right for you and for your family, check out seatonhome.org, aiming to assist homeschooling parents with an academically excellent and authentically Catholic curriculum, seatonhome.org. And we're back. And Ed, we had to go to commercial. I'm so sorry. I know that it Dickle was... Cell. I know, I know you were talking about something, but we just, we had to go to commercial. You were talking about uh, something. I don't make the rules. I don't write the names of the dicasters of the Roman Curia. This is not my fault. And show, my you friend. can stop um, being silly about this anytime you this want. Ca- this ca- <laughs> I was asking you about a perfectly cromulent question about the, about the recent changes to canon law in which Pope Francis didn't alter the universal law of the church, but he issued a rescript, basically a stable basis for getting a dispensation from the law to allow lay members of Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life to have lay major superiors who would exercise in for those societies and institutes that have clerical members the power of governance by a layperson over clerics, including over some spiritual matters, like, for example, faculties to say mass and hear confessions and things like that, which is, and we wrote about this at the time, something that largely went unnoticed, but is actually a very big deal in terms of the the, the operation and life of the church. Now, I admit, cabined within um, certain societies of apostolic life and institutes of consecrated life, it's maybe not that big a deal. And there is there are for some of the ones that you would expect to to seek this, to seek use of this rescript, good historical reasons why they would want lay people to be eligible to serve as their major superiors. However, the legal premise does appear to be there. So you 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 were saying that, you know, yes, there is this qualifier according to the nature of you know, the the dicastery, you know, the lay people can serve as prefects, basically asterisk depending on the dicastery and what that does, what that dicastery does. But I'm saying that qualification on its own appears to be a big one, but we've chipped away at it quite a bit in the last month. I, I see no reason why we couldn't have a lay prefect of the current congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life. I is that cat? Do you have a I, cat wandering across your screen? A cat just jumped on my uh, jumped on my um, ju- jumped on the table. Yes, or jumped on my little surface here. Yes. Well, okay. I, it, look, if you're going to have a cat in the room, you're going to have to like cradle it and look like a Bond villain. I'm going to have to insist on that. Well, I am petting the cat while you speak, uh, so I suppose fine. Um, so anyway, if you, I, I would say, I mean, sure, the Congregation for Catholic Education, yeah, no reason. I don't see that why a layperson couldn't be in charge of that. I, I honestly, I, well, I might have my own reservations about um, what it means for the interpretation of all the issues of law and governance and orders that we've been talking about. I, I don't see anything in the current trend of law that suggests that the Holy See would view a lay prefect of the Congregation for Religious off the table. It's possible. I don't know. I, I just I think the door might be wider to that than you think. Um, so, I, I think yeah. that's right. I mean, part of what I was trying to say is, as I read the law X, but the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and my reading of the law is not authoritative. So we will find out in a certain way. We will find out what the law means when it is applied, um, and uh, and we'll find out what predicate evangelium means when it is applied, and we'll find out the extent to which. We, we will never find out the extent of its perceived limits. We will only extent find out the extent of, to which um, the Roman pontiff or a future Roman pontiff perceives that it is that it offers a, a permission. 
Um, you know, and so that will be what it is. The reason we started talking about this is because one of is because we're talking about Gerlanda, Gianfranco Gerlanda, and Gerlanda, who is a cardinal, who is um, uh, not a voting age, it seems. Uh, well, he is at the moment. He is at the moment, but who he uh, won't be by August. Uh, who will not be a voting age by the time he has created a cardinal, according to my read of creating cardinal, uh, um, was named a cardinal, and that was a, in a certain way not surprising because Gerlanda has given this lifetime of service to the church. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, he and, deserves it. But in a certain way, at this moment, I think it could be interpreted as Gerlanda was made a cardinal because he is endorsing this this view that seems to broadly reinterpret the power of governance. And I, I don't know. Maybe that's true. I, I really don't like um, – it doesn't make for good radio, but I really don't like sort of trying to read the tea leaves about why somebody became a cardinal. I don't even like trying to read the tea leaves about why somebody didn't become a cardinal. People love to do that. I, I don't love to do the why somebody didn't become a cardinal or did – especially in the case of a person who's this uh, – you know, who's this um, – old sort of esteemed canonist hanging around the Gerlander reminds me of um remember that episode of the west wing where they were getting people for the spin room of uh of bartlett's debate with uh with um with the florida governor uh the, the george w bush proxy the george w bush proxy yeah the, I, I can't can't remember his name now and uh they wanted to get that albie duncan Richie. who was yeah, Richie, yeah, Governor Richie. They want to get that Albie Duncan, that who was an undersecretary of the Secretary of State, and and uh, I'm embarrassed to say yes, I have almost total recall for the point of the television show that you are. You know exactly what I I'm do. talking about, and they were worried that Albie was going to give complex answers instead of sound bites, and then after Jed in the debate basically made an argument in favor of complex answers instead of sound bites, um, you know, CJ went and asked him a question, which enabled him to just kind of wax. Uh, nuanced about globalization in a certain way. Uh, the point is that Albie Duncan was kind of this guy hanging around the State Department for about a million years with all this sort of history and knowledge and these kinds Institutional of things. Wisdom. Institutional wisdom and knowledge. Um, and uh, even if you didn't agree with his policy positions on certain things, you could sort of see the way in which he was an institution. And Girlanda, I think, in many ways, is a similar kind of institution. I, I would right? absolutely agree with that. I mean, you can't – anyone who studies or works in the field of canon law knows Gerlanda's name and uh, respects him for the the towering presence in the canonical field that he is. His his views on legal positivism. Power of governance and legal positivism notwithstanding. Gerlanda yeah, walks so, into a room. Okay. Because he no, does. I'm stopping you there. The Stop that. Room. Stop that. Okay. No, there will be none of that. Thank you. Um, no, so here's an interesting question. I wonder if Gerlanda will be made a bishop. Oh, I guess it's up to him. Yeah, because I mean, if you're going into the if you're if you're being named a cardinal with the understanding that you're going to be voting in the next conclave, you're you're supposed to be a bishop by by custom. The Pope, you know, the the College of Cardinals is a merely ecclesiastical institution. The Pope can do what he likes with it. It doesn't exist by divine law. It is you know it is a it is a totally malleable institution in that sense. But it is the the long established custom that um, those who are intending to participated in the conclave are are made bishops at the time or before they are given the red hat. Um, but Father Girlanda is not even Monsignor Girlanda, for he is a member of the Society of Jesus, and they don't go in for those sorts of baubles. Uh, but I will be interested to see uh, if he if he takes a pointy hat in all this. And if he does, I will find that amusing. Given what he has said about the you power know, the, of governance, so. the power, power of governance, and the you know you don't you don't need a, you know you don't need to be consecrated a bishop to exercise power of governance or anything like that. I, I will be amused. I, I uh, yeah, me too. I want to I want to dive into that issue a little bit more um, because we've been sort of dancing around it. But first, 
The last priest to be named a cardinal was, I think, um, uh, Cherney. I think I think that Cardinal Cherney was not a bishop at the time that he was named a cardinal, and he he was consecrated a bishop to the best of my recollection. Uh, he was, yes. He was. But Avery Dulles, boy, this is just sort of a Society of Jesus walk, walk down the Society of Jesus. I believe that Avery Dulles declined to be consecrated. If I remember correctly, I believe that Cardinal Dulles declined to be consecrated a uh, a bishop at the time. I believe that's true. Father. There was also JP2 named, um, I think it was a Belgian priest. Who was a was a confessor of his for a while as a cardinal, and he was not made a bishop. He was well superannuated at the time he got it. He was well over eighty, um, and I don't think he was named a bishop. I think he was he was a cardinal priest, properly speaking. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, this issue of the power of governance. Boy, I'll tell you, Gerlando was not the cardinal I thought we were going to be talking about today. Really? Who else matters? <laughs> this issue of the power of governance. It is. I, I do think. I don't think we should walk away from. That which came up tangentially or anecdotally, but which is really important because it is something that is not going away. There is a shift right now happening in the way that the church interprets the relationship between authority and orders, that it is happening relatively quickly, that from the perspective of the church's tradition in law defies history and custom. And I think, at the very least, um, as I see it, sort of stretches the ordinary doctrinal understanding of the relationship between authority and orders, and even priestly orders. I mean, even priestly orders. I want to pull up Omnium and Mentum while you talk about this a little bit, because I think that there might be some things we could learn about this, even from Omnium and Mentum, about the way that this has been traditionally conceived. And and there is a shift going on right now, and I don't know where this is going. I mean, it's just a trend that we see right now, that there's a way of talking about authority that is very different from the customary way that the church talks about the relationship. Of authority. Now, it doesn't mean it's historically unprecedented. It doesn't mean no. that lay people... One of the things of the Second Vatican Council is encouragement that lay people share in the power of governance by delegation. And this lay, is already in the Code of Canon Law. It's already in the Code of Canon Law. And, you know, I used to be, at, as you probably know, an archdiocesan chancellor, and I enjoyed a number of um, delegated powers by which I could exercise the you delegated certainly did enjoy them. Shut up. Um, by which I could exercise the uh, the power of governance on various matters which were delegated to me and other lay people who listen to the show probably have the same thing. But um, but the notion that a lay person could hold an office like v- Vicar General where they have ordinary power of governance has been perceived not only to be legally problematic but, but theologically problematic. And yes. it seems like we're moving in that direction. As we say, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, but that's not... Not insignificant. Now, maybe you could talk about that and talk about lay abbesses at the same time, or abbesses at the same time. Oh, I, I don't know that I'm ready to talk about about the mitered abbesses, but I, I mean, it, it is okay. So it, again, as you say, this is a this is a, a school of thought, canonically speaking, that has been around for a long time, and, and, and it's theologically, a, wouldn't you? Not, and not. theologically, it's been around for a long time, and it, you know, the the conversation goes back and forth. It's one of those things that, you know, it's, we will always be talking about this for as long as we have the church and as long as we have um, the clergy and the laity. This, this will always go back and forth, and that's, that's fine. It is a normal part of the life of the church. As you say, it, it's, it seemed, the direction of travel seems to be, you know, the tide is going in one way right now, and it, it's, it'll be interesting to see how far up the shore it gets. I mean, even the change that I mentioned earlier about lay brothers and sisters being able to serve as major superiors— uh, Sorry, lay brothers to be able to serve as major superiors of um, those institutes of consecrated life and societies of apostolic life that have clerical members um, is is interesting in the sense that it only extends so far. 
you you know, if you're a major superior, you have, as you say, some parts, ordinary power of governance to a degree, you have your sort of equivalent in law to the power of a vicar general, you're not, you don't have the same power of governance as a local ordinary that right, is a diocesan right, right. bishop. But and, and so for example, you're, you're dealing with only one kind of power as a major superior, which is executive power, you don't have legislative power, you don't necessarily have judicial power. Um, and but lay people can cooperate in the exercise of judicial power already. I myself have served as a judge on the tribunals of several dioceses, and you know I was I got a a, a decree of appointment from the bishop or archbishop of the archdiocese or diocese saying I was a judge and I was to exercise the judicial power of governance in cooperation with uh, the other majority. Cleric but even there, a lay person the can't be a sole a sole judge. No, no, no. You you always have to be the minority. Um, on a on a turno of judges, so yours is you know you are one lay one lay guy to two clerics is normally how it goes or gal or lay gal um, on a on a turno of three judges normally. Um, so there is already that. So it's not like this is necessarily trending in a direction that is um, an epochal change, but it will be interesting to see, especially with the changes at the top of the Roman Curia that I think are are coming and in a sense overdue. You know, to see if to see if there's a couple of wild cards there. You know, what if we had a lay? I don't think we'll get a lay head of the congregation for the doctrine of the faith, but what if we did? And what what would it mean theologically? And the reason I bring up mitered abbesses is because uh, in the Middle Ages there were these things called territorial abbesses, which still exist in principle, and I'm sure that there are some that still exist in fact. Um, but a territorial abbacy was a place in which the abbot of a monastery enjoyed. Um, territorial jurisdiction for the care of souls in the same way, uh, making him effectively equivalent to uh, a bishop, a diocesan bishop in law, you know, that he could exercise many of the prerogatives of a diocesan bishop within the territory of a thing called the territorial abbacy. Um, and um, it is often brought up that abbesses, I don't think that abbesses exercise power over territorial ab- abbesses, but that abbesses would exercise the power of governance internally to the thing. Is that the issue that... I... I wouldn't want to say that definitively. I think in history, there were mitered abbesses that effectively had territorial jurisdiction. I could be wrong. I know that it's sometimes brought up as a sort of red herring into this conversation, but I haven't done enough homework to understand the fullness no. of the red herring. But I'll be honest with you. The coolest thing about mitered abbesses that I that I am aware of is that they would they would sit on their abbatial see chair, and, and instead of wearing the mitre on their head, they would have the mitre on their lap, hmm. That's which lovely. I always thought was cool. Um, but I bring all this up to say that there are sort of historical peculiarities which are raised. Um, yeah, so um, uh, an abbess can exercise domestic authority uh, over her monastery and its dependencies, but that's not the same thing. Uh, I don't know. I think that the notion of mitred abbesses would have to um, would have to really be delved into to understand the whole whole set of issues there. But certainly, any the head of any religious institute of women exercises the power of governance over her religious institute, but it doesn't involve things like the conferral of priestly faculties. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it, it involves the power of governance and things which do not pertain to the munis sanctificandi of the church. Right. Right, exactly. So it's not that a layperson can't exercise any office of the power of governance, but can't exercise an office of the power of governance which pertains to certain elements of the munis sanctificandi of the church. Well, and and at least uh, as, as we have everything now, there's no mechanism for lay people to share in the legislative power of governance right that's 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 quite so that is quite quite so to to write particular law okay so omnium in mentum in were you a canon lawyer in 2009 
Uh, no, I was not. But I, I mean, I, I did study Omnium Momentum. Um, and we, you know, we have not had a new print edition of the Code of Canon Law in quite some time. And all print editions are currently woefully out of date because yeah. we've had an entire new book six. And I remember the day we were all told, open your codes and you're going to have to scrub out this canon and write an asterisk and say, see Omnium Momentum and, you know, paste it into the back. I'll be honest with you. I, I only remember Omnium Momentum as it pertains to defection from the church by a formal act. Basically, the oh, no, you can't German element. provision. There's oh, there good, is another element. I, I'm sure. I'm just saying that's what. I'll, whenever I hear omnium momentum, I think no, this is about Germans leaving the church. Ah, uh, I always think first that it's about deacons because I remember just where I was standing when I read omnium momentum. I was standing on the steps. I was uh, working in the Archdiocese of Denver, and I was standing on the steps of um, of Centro San Juan Diego, which was a which is is I presume is a, a center of a ministry, a Hispanic ministry in the Archdiocese of Denver of various kinds in a very cool place. And uh, I read Omnium and Mentum, and I sort of texted a ha-ha at a bunch of, a bunch of uh, deacon friends. Because Omnium and Mentum clarified... Of course you did. ...added, uh, and rightly so, added, um, Omnium and Mentum was a 2009 motu proprio of Benedict the Sixteenth. We only got a few motu proprios from Benedict the Sixteenth changing canon law, whereas now we seem to get them often. But adding a paragraph to canon 1009, uh, adding paragraph 3, which says, those who are constituted in the order of the episcopate or the presbyter receive the mission and capacity to act in the person of Christ the head, whereas deacons are empowered to serve the people of God in the ministries of the liturgy, the word, and charity. Clarifying that a deacon who is the icon of Christ the servant. I think there was some commentary about Omnium Momentum that talked a lot about the notion of the deacon as the icon of Christ the servant, but that the, the those ordained to be priests or um, bishops would exercise the uh, the uh, would receive the capacity to act in the person of Christ the head, which is to say, receive a, a certain kind of capacity to exercise the power of governance. And as we say, it's not that other people can't exercise certain offices of the power of governance, but with regard to the fullness of the power of governance or power of governance as it regards the Munus Sanctificandi in certain ways and and uh, sort of jurisdiction for the care of souls, there are limitations. We're going to get letters from canon lawyers urging us to be more precise. I think there's a Dominican canon lawyer who's going to send us a long note urging us to be more precise. I bet there's a judicial vicar in a warm place who's going to send us a note urging us to be more precise. Gentlemen, ladies, we're trying. But can deacons not serve as single clerical judges? Deacons can serve as sole clerical judges. Is that not the the exercise one, of the power of governance? One exercise of the power of governance, but could a deacon be the judicial vicar? Or, no. no, no, no. To to be an Episcopal vicar, one must be a presbyter. Yes. To have vicariously the ordinary power, to have ordinarily and vicariously, ordinarily, I suppose more importantly, to have ordinarily uh, a share. I, I'm just saying that deacons um, can exercise not... some elements of the power of governance, and this is merely a sort of exhortatory norm, this 10009. But it does tell us something. Yes, it does tell us something, which is that whenever anyone mentions deacons, things get confused. Things get a little confused. Well, this is not the conversation I expected to have, but to my way of thinking, it's been a pretty interesting one. Uh, this is the only conversation to have. I, what else is there to talk about? <laughs> what else is there to talk about? And this week, uh, you, I, I, I have no idea why this came up, but this week you expressed uh, hope, a, a certain kind of hope that a movie, a, a movie would be released uh, that would be made a movie called Bring It On 2. Bring It On, Oh, of no, course. this is... Well, hang on. I, it's not... I mean, I just... One of the things that floated across my Twitter feed is, as happens when you scroll through Twitter, is there was, you know, um, in Russia, there was on Russian television one of these big mass crowd events, you know, singing... Happening. happening you know, guys in military uniforms singing things, um, big flags, 
marching bands, all that sort of stuff. And in the middle of them was a, um, a, a group of ladies and gentlemen doing what started out in the video looking a lot like the sort of uh, freeform interpretive modern dance that you favor um, when you go to your little NPR wine and cheese parties. Um, Dude, I... You like dance. I Don't, like classical ballet. No, you've told me you've gone no, to modern. I, get, I have you, because you, I have subscribed. I have a subscription to the ballet. You've I, you've said on this show that you you dig modern dance. That you like modern dance. There are certain kinds of modern dance that I like, but I've also said how important narrative ballet is to me. I, I'm not judging you. I also like ballet. You're judging me falsely. I'm not judging you at all. Okay. I, I'm, no I've, been a bit, I, I've been a bit. I've I'm saying why did I stop on this thing? It was because it had this kind of dance going i was like oh maybe this is something jd would be into maybe this is maybe this is jd's sort of <laughs> i'm so grateful you thought port. of me of course i immediately thought of you but then it, it stopped being what i would recognize as serious dance and turned into what were obviously cheerleader routines albeit in sort of militaristic ballerina uniforms um and it i mean it looks like a a cheerleading demonstration going on between a, a sort of you know military marching band on either flanked on either side of them and a military choir singing behind them. And I just thought, well, this is hilarious. And I just thought we need, we need to bring it on movie where Kirsten and the gals come out of retirement and go to Russia, like Rocky four and stick it to Vlad. The point is, the point is that you are, and I don't want you to, I do not want you to equivocate on the show. I'd be so frustrated if you don't know this. I will not equivocate. You are a fan of the 2000 American Dean cheerleading comedy film. Bring it on. Are you not? Oh yeah, a classic of a genre. It came out. Well, it came out. Well, um, I was just finishing high school. While well, you were just finishing high we school, we were graduating high school. That's right. I had. Well, I can't, we had actually. It came out. It came out in August of two thousand. So I was packing for college, which is probably why I didn't see it until I saw it on a date years later. But you apparently went to the theater uh, to see it. I think you took a gap year, so you had time to. I mean, a lot of probably the gap year was about the release of Bring It On, I suspect. And uh, and so you went to see the film. I, I wouldn't go that far, but it was, I mean, I I had um, my, as you know, I went to secondary school, um, not in this country. And so and I, you did I have a class of right? You graduated. Oh, no, I was actually. But yeah, I, uh, I, I having been educated, um, not in this country, I have, uh, I, I had a great affinity for anything that was sort of schlocky and cartoonish related to American high school, which was an experience that I was completely missing out on. And bring oh, it on to you me. you believe that American high school is probably like going to Bayside. Basically, yeah. And so I bring it on to me, I thought was, was simultaneously, I mean, it was a trash movie. But also, it was just cartoonish enough that the, the, the sort of sneering sob was kind of like, well, that's probably what they're like, isn't it? I mean, but it was also very funny at times. I mean, I sympathized with the main moody lead character who was walking around with a Clash t-shirt and having to explain to people that there are actual things called classic rock bands that you people are all Philistines and don't understand. You're I mean, still I, going. <laughs> I, I well, you didn't movie. want me to equivocate, so I'm I'm not equivocating. I'm saying, yes, I like the movie. And the, the plot of the movie kind of centers on a high school cheerleading team as they're getting ready for a big national competition. And I think... The bad guy, if I remember correctly, the sort of leader of the other team is played by Gabby Union, Dwayne Wade's wife, noted Nebraskan, and Kirsten Dunst plays the leader of the sort of team, the main team, the, the team. Right, the but it turns out that the, the quote-unquote good guys have been cheating all the way along and stealing the quote-unquote bad team's routines. And, right, exactly. That's You know, so, I mean, it's, it's high drama, J.D. But there's some res there's some reconciliation at the end, is that right? 
Yeah, it's a teen movie, of course. Everyone has to be, you know, friends at the end. Okay, good. Okay. Well, anyway, that's Bring It On, which you're a big fan of, and you were hoping that there'd be a Bring It On too, and it was pointed out to you that there are in effects. Can you imagine? I want to see the original cast of Bring It On, like, in sheepskin coats, running up Russian mountainsides knee-deep in snow like Rocky Four, and, like, lifting logs and stuff. I must cheer you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, right. you know, have the sort of automaton. Yeah. Um, and then Kirsten Dunst is like, if I can change... Uh, yeah. You can change, yeah. Uh-huh. Then you can leave Ukraine. You did know, you see? The, uh, did you see the director's cut of Rocky Four? Like a re-edit? A, no, I heard there was one that I re-edited of Rocky Four, like a year and a half ago or something. I watched it. it was good. I mean, it, I didn't remember Rocky Four well enough to know, like, oh, this scene hadn't been in it or whatever. And I think a lot of the edit scenes were Carl Weathers scenes. Um, uh, well, Carl Weathers is great. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was the the best part of Rocky Four is Apollo Creed's entrance. That is correct. Now, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about. Before don't, Carl Weathers was a character on Arrest Development, he was in a series of movies called um, Rocky, one, two, three, four, Balboa. I, I was going to say don't insult our listeners by saying they don't know who Carl Weathers is and they haven't seen Rocky Four. Of course they have. These are all people of great discerning taste. I think they are. Okay. Anyway. You, you were I, saying I that there should be Bring It On 2 and it was, you were informed that there are in fact six Brings It On. Brings It On? Bring It On. Bringings. bringings six on. comings. There are six Bringings On. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, what I thought we might do, given that you're a fan of the original, but you haven't seen the others, and this is sort of a seat of my pants game here, but, um, I'll just sort of tell you the title of a couple of the, of the films in the Bring It On, uh, uh, series, and you sort of, you speculate about what you think the movie might be about, and then I'll tell oh, you yes, if please. you're, if you're close or not. Okay. So, Ed, the first one that we will, uh, try this with here, sir, is, um, is Bring It On, um... Uh, one, two, three. What I suppose would be bring it on four, bring it on, four. bring it on in it to win it. Uh, what happens, Ed, in bring it on in it to win it? Um. Okay. In bring it on four, Kirsten Dunst's character is now a divorced um, woman living on her own in difficult circumstances because she has a terrible uh, both gambling habit and drinking problem and she decides to stake both her financial future and her personal narrative redemption arc on entering a high stakes las vegas cheer off and um she is it's a double elimination and she's absolutely faced in the first round and she has to go through an intense rocky ass training montage to get back in um and and win win the gold bracelet for the world poker series of cheerleading in vegas at which point she's able to um, reconcile herself uh with her demons from having peaked in high school and move on with her life okay so ed says it's about a put put that in a nutshell for me because i must admit i was i didn't listen to all of it uh high stakes vegan vegas gambling high stakes vegas gambling well the 2007 film Bring It On, In It to Win It is a Romeo and Juliet West Side Story uh, star-crossed lover's tale. Southern California high school senior Carson arrives at the all-important cheer camp nationals determined to lead her squad, the West High Sharks, to victory. But chic New Yorker Brooke and her team, the East High Jets, are equally steadfast in their pursuit of the competition's coveted spirit stick. As tension 
mounts between the two rivals. Carson falls for fellow cheerleader Penn, not realizing he's a Jet. When Brooke discovers the budding romance, she raises the stakes by challenging Carson to a one-on-one cheer-off. A spectacular cheer-fighting sequence erupts into a no-holds-barred brawl, and cheerleaders on both sides are suspended from the competition. With their dreams of taking home the top prize all but shattered, the leaders of both squads, Ed, must do what? Uh, form a new team composed of members from the rival gangs. The Sharks and the Jets are going to cheer together in the 2007 Classic. Bring it on in it to win it. You you got Teaming it. Teaming you know, up like Flash Gordon. <laughs> you want to do another? Oh Yeah, are you kidding me? This is the best game you've ever done. I think this is a good game. I'm just trying to decide. I know which one I want to end on. I'm just trying to decide if it's if I want to go to the last one right now or if I want to do three of these altogether. You know, I don't know how long this is going to sustain itself, honestly. But we'll give it a try. We'll try to do three. Ed, bring it on. Fight to the finish. This is Bring It On 5, 2009 film. Bring it on. Fight to the finish. Bring It On 5, Fight to the Finish hits um, a some sort of identikit, um, you know, three generations on Luke Perry type figure uh, who is the princeling of his high school and the leader of the cheer team. And he is challenged by a moody, slightly emo newcomer to the school uh, who joins the cheer squad. And they spend the entire film battling it out for supremacy. And the entire narrative is complicated when it turns out that the new interloper is actually secretly his half-brother. Like a good soap opera. Possibly the half-brother wears an eye patch. And the same actor is playing both parts. And that, and they, he and the half-brother end in some sort of a fight to the finish. Right. And they end up fighting not right. just... Yeah, they end up not just fighting for supremacy and cheerleading, but also for the affections of one or other parent. I see. Well, you were close. But survey really? says no. Oh. <laughs> oh, actually, you might have been closer than you think. Uh, I'm going to read you a, a plot synopsis from imdb.com. I did not write this plot synopsis. Lena Cruz is a tough, sharp-witted Latina cheerleader from East L.A. who transfers to the posh West L.A. high school after her widowed mother remarries a wealthy man. And Lena not only finds herself a fish out of her environment... I don't know why they didn't say water. A fish out of her environment, i.e. water, at her you new high school... You can't presume. In these days, J.D., you can't presume that all fish live in water. <laughs> That's true. There's that whole... Yeah. Uh, but she faces off against Avery, the snobbish and ultra-competitive all-star cheerleading captain, to qualify for a spot on her new school's cheerleading team with the help of who? New sheltered stepsister Skylar and her former teammates, whom she calls up to help her. So you were, I mean, there was something about step parenting in yours, wasn't there? I mean, I don't remember. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, okay. So you were close. I mean, which of these out of those two so far, in it to win it or fight to the finish, do you think you're going to see tonight? Uh, uh, Assuming this is a purely relative answer, uh, probably the secondary one, just because I absolutely despise... West Side Story. So the first one you pitched me was basically West Side Story with cheerleading. And yeah, no. I I suspect the first one probably had Lin-Manuel Miranda involved in it somewhere. (laughs) And I don't want to be within a country mile of it. (laughs) All right, Ed, we're going to talk about the sixth installment of the Bring It On film series uh, released, sadly, direct-to-video. I mean, it's sad. I don't even know what direct-to-video. This movie came out in 2017. I don't even know what direct-to-video means. It means it went straight in the bargain bucket at at Walmart. (laughs) I guess. But the name of this movie, Ed, the 2017 uh, Bring It On 6, my friend, is... I can't believe they made six of these. 
Bring it on. You love I don't know what you're like. You love Bring It On. This is I, I'm I'm just I'm exposing yeah, but I am you assuming this is a different kind, cast each time. Like, this you is, like. Yeah, but Kirsten Dunst is an amazing actress. Oh, so gosh. She Kirsten carried Dunst that is an amazing movie. actress, but that means she I have is. A crush on. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, she's an amazing actress. No, that is yeah. unfair. That it is totally has a crush unfair. On Kirsten Dunst. Uh. Uh-uh. Do no, you or do no. you not? I mean, right now, just, just us here. Do you or do you not have a crush on Kirsten Dunst? I do not. <laughs> Look at that guy grinning. You guys can't see it, but Ed is—he's red in the face and he's grinning. It's a lie. You've met my wife. It's just I, Kirsten Dunst is a fat. I respect her as an artist, but she's not my flavor of ice cream. <laughs> What to say about that, Ed? The 2017 straight video classic, Bring It On Worldwide, hashtag cheer smack. Bring it on worldwide, hashtag cheer smack. It's, it's official title is not actually hashtag cheer smack. Would I lie to you? I No, but at the same time, I feel like the internet would lie to you. And then. No, I. Mean, I, that, I is this a joke? Are you on an accidental joke page? Bring it on. No, I'm on many pages because I have to find a synopsis of this thing. Uh, bring it on worldwide. Hashtag cheer smack. 2017 straight to video uh, All right. sequel I, of Bring I, It On. I, I, I can predict the plot of this one. Yeah, I, I want to see. All right. So what happens here is in a dystopian near future. Um, all cheerleading conversation competitions due to the coronavirus are no longer in person, but have to be uh, conducted purely as individual videos spliced together into multi-frame montages for display on computer screen, and it is entirely conducted by TikTok. Um, but the situation is complicated when it turns out that China is in fact using the competition to backdoor its way into the cell phones of America's youth and steal their personal data. And so our heroes, whoever they are, have to not only win the cheerleading competition without leaving their quarantine zones, but also beat the Chai comms. That's a movie. That's a movie right there. You are not right, but I'm not going to go so far as to say that you're wrong. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Vivica A. Fox makes her Bring It On debut as Cheer Goddess, the internet's most popular cheer liberty. Now, I believe that there are cheer liberties because I have seen that Netflix series that's called Cheer and... Oh, no, no. I've seen it. I'm aware they're cheers. So. Remember they recruited that one girl who was... Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The ringer. The, the ringer who was a cheer liberty. Yes. When Destiny, captain of the three-time national champions, The Rebels, is challenged to a global cheer showdown by an edgy new team called The Truth... The cheer goddess organizes a virtual battle for squads from all around the world. It seems like the whole world wants to take down Destiny and her team, and they just might succeed unless... What does Destiny have to do, Ed, to succeed? Uh, Again, this is from IMDb. I'm not writing this on on the fly. uh, It seems like the whole world wants to take Destiny and her team down, and they just might succeed unless... She can forge an unlikely new friendship stroke, um, win over the heart of a love interest. Well, unless Destiny can rise to the challenge, set her ego aside, and figure out who her real friends are. Bring it on. My version was better. (laughs) But you haven't seen this one. Where are the stakes? You said this is number eight? This is a six, I think. Whatever. Set, By number six, seven, you seven. need to you need to up the stakes to keep the audience hooked. It's like you can't just say, "Oh, well, this is for winning." You get like if this is about the battle against communism <laughs> and tech security. I mean, come on, up the stakes. You're six films deep. You gotta, you know, where's the where's the climb? No, I I I definitely hear what you're saying. I want to be clear to you that I definitely 
hear and appreciate what it is, Ed, that you are saying here. Um, there is also, oh gosh, do I have news for you? There's a seven coming out. You want the stakes to be raised, do you not? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to find out what the release date is because I'm super excited for you, Ed. You want the stakes to be higher. And uh, scheduled for release this autumn. <laughs> oh my goodness. Is the next installment of the hit Bring It On movie franchise. It wrapped its production in Winnipeg last December. Ed, bring it on, cheer or die. This is the first... Cheer or die? This is the first film of the horror genre in the Bring It On series. You're making this up. I am not making it up. Uh, it wow. has. I don't know how horror it's going to be. It did recently receive... Oh, just last month, it received a PG-13 rating for uh, for violence. It is expected to debut on the sci-fi streaming channel in autumn 2022. I don't know if it's going to be in movies or, you know, I don't know if it's going to be in theaters or not, but um, starring some people I've never heard of, uh, written by someone I've never heard of, but this is the next submission in the Bring It On film series universe, the Bring It On extended universe, if you will. It is the horror submission, Bring It On, Cheer or Die. Ed, this is totally unplanned. I just, I cannot even believe what's happening here, but would you like to take a stab, as it were, at the plot? Well, you said it was filmed in Winnipeg, so I'm assuming this is a Canadian horror film. So, well, no, I... no, no, a lot of movies are filmed in Canada because they give you tax breaks and whatnot to pretend that, like, like you know, Toronto always stands in for for New York and whatnot. Ah, I see. Um, I mean, presumably, since you told me it's a horror movie, this is this is actually just going to do what it says in the tin, which is this is you know sort of Squid Games meets Cheer, like you know you the losing the team with the losing score is you know fed to Wolverines or something. I. Which, I mean, I'll be honest with you, there are many times uh, in when watching teen films that you would like to see a character fed to Wolverines. So this this could be cathartic. This could be the natural conclusion of the of the series. I I This is a groundbreaking know. film because it is the first you film. You said PG-13? It is PG-13. Okay, because I have a strict no horror rule. I absolutely I hate I do not like movies. horror movies at all, yeah. Uh-huh. I no, might I... stretch to a PG-13 if we... Well, look, when this comes out, I will... We'd have to peg it to like a serious subscription drive, but <laughs> I, I, I would consider watching oh, and live love tweeting. Oh, I'd mystery science theater on this one. Yeah, I would consider that. Yeah, um, we. I'd still like to do that at some point about the tribe. You know, the tribunal series, the tribunal. Movies? Yeah, 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 I do want to see that. But anyway, um, look, this, Universal says that this is actually Universal fourteen forty, which is a, I, I believe a sort of no Universal um, straight to video uh, uh, imprint. But Universal says that this is a groundbreaking film within the uh, Bring It On extended universe because this is the very, this is the first Bring It On, Ed, um, of the entire series to have a female director who obviously brings a fresh take on the franchise's historically comedic films, showcasing a multi-talented diverse course and will entertain longtime Bring It On movie fans as well as open the doors. Wait, they're suggesting that the previous installments were all comedies? I'm just telling you what they're telling us. That's um, I, I mean, again, I've only seen the original, but I did not view that as a comedy. I thought I, it was a gritty drama. I, I report you decide. Um, here, there's very little because they don't want any spoilers to get. Obviously, spoilers are, you know, pe- people are worried about that. So obviously, spoilers are not going to get out. But what they tell us is that Bring It On, Cheer or Die follows a cheer squad as they practice their routines overnight in an abandoned school during Halloween weekend where one by one, the teens fall victim. This is a tragedy to a deranged assailant. 
Nothing funny about oh, that. Oh no, that's that's, that's not terrible. even a little but bit inventive. I, I'm gonna bet and that also, by the there's end, no choice. What's the cheer or die if they're just getting picked I'm off one at a time? I'm gonna guess that by the end, what we learn is that they're all fine. That they were it's a trick or a prank, or they're all fine, or they learned the power of friendship. I am not willing to believe that anything really bad happens in this movie. Well, I, I'm not. That that's a that's a woefully hackneyed premise. I was hoping for something more creative. Well, we haven't uh, we haven't seen or reviewed the film yet. Now, much as they may regret it after this entire conversation, this episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Seton Home Study School, an accredited school assisting homeschooling parents with academically excellent and authentically Catholic curriculum. Check it out at setonhome.org to decide if the Seton Home Study School is right for you. And uh, sponsors at the Seton Home Study School. Look, I... I don't. I can't control where the episodes go. You know what I'm saying. Um, and uh, so, thank you for your sponsorship, and thank you, listeners, for listening and subscribing and sharing and rating and ranking the Pillar Podcast wherever you get your fine podcast. Um, you can subscribe at pillarcatholic.com/slash-subscribe. And the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host and Pillar editor in chief, JD Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Bring It On guru, the cheer of cheerleading himself. Uh, Ed Condon. And there's nothing weird about that. We'll be back next week. 